Good morning. Well, I think we can go home. I already feel blessed and encouraged by, by this morning. Um, I'm glad to be here this morning. I was honored to get invited by Pastor Jason to, uh, to come and spend this morning with you. And um, just as a way of introduction for those whom I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Rick, uh, Rick Penner, and my wife Karis, and my little daughter Anaya is apparently somewhere in the nursery. Um, and uh, I am the uh, student ministry pastor at Nelson Covenant Church. Um, so Judy asked if I could speak a little bit to that, and uh, basically I get to work alongside um, Pastor Jeff in Nelson and uh, join in on the ministry that's happening um, in Nelson, but also tied in with what's happening here in Balfour and what's happening in Junction, and it's just a real blessing to be a part of that. Um, my focus specifically is, is more geared towards uh, spending time and ministering to youth and uh, junior youth and as well as young adults. We have a young adults group that, uh, that we meet every Sunday afternoon, except for today, because I'm here. Um, but yeah, if, if you see any young adults around and tell them to come over to our place after the service on Sundays, we gather for lunch and time of discussion. And as Brianne already gave a thorough introduction of, of what we do at Schlam and what we do at Core Youth, um, we connect with kids, we build relationships, but all ultimately to point them towards Jesus, to help uh, young people take another step in their faith, whether they're brand new to the faith or whether they need to take another step. Um, our goal is constantly to, to point others towards Jesus and, and hopefully live that as a role model as well. Um, so my family, um, Karis and my daughter and I, we moved here from Winnipeg, Manitoba about uh, a couple months ago now. We moved here at the end of uh, October and um, we uh, joined the Covenant Church actually in Winnipeg about nine years ago. And uh, we had never heard about this small denomination until we moved to Winnipeg. Uh, my wife is from Hong Kong and I grew up in Mexico. And long story short, we met at a Bible college in middle of nowhere, Manitoba, and uh, planted our life in Winnipeg. Um, and uh, before... Before journeying into ministry, um, I, guess, I guess vocational ministry, our whole lives are ministry, but b before taking the step into <clears throat> pastoral ministry, I was actually working as a commercial pilot for the last number of years. Uh, that's what I was trained in. I was ready to go to WestJet. I had my application ready. And um, just this sense of, of God calling me elsewhere for this season in life. And so needless to say, our journey into Vocational ministry has been a wild ride uh, with a complete career change, uh, but not only that, leaving our friends and family in, uh, in Winnipeg to come here. Uh, but it's been, it's been a blessing. As challenging as it is to start new as an adult, to leave your family, leave your friends, leave your community, um, it's been a real blessing to, to kind of plug in here and just uh, get to know people and be blessed by, by the church communities that you guys have here. Um, I actually remember a couple of years ago with my job, we flew into Castlegar and we stayed the night there. And um, I remember telling my, my co-pilot, I said, man, I would love to live here someday. <laughs> Not in a million years thinking that we would ever actually end up here. But it's funny how, how things like that work out. Um, 
so as I, as I mentioned in my previous job uh, as a pilot, I really enjoyed most aspects of flying. But as with any job, uh, not, aspect, not all aspects of it were fun. There were some parts that I absolutely hated. And one of those things that I just hated and I dreaded year after year was a yearly evaluation. As a commercial pilot, you need to have a yearly evaluation done on you um, to, to make sure whether you're fit to fly, basically. And um, one part of that evaluation is a medical evaluation. So you go see a doctor, he checks your heart, your vision, your hearing, and that part um, as a young buck isn't too, too worrying for myself. Uh, so that wasn't too stressful. But what was really stressful was um, you get into an airplane with an examiner and he drills you for three hours straight, first in, in the classroom setting and then another hour and a half in the airplane, and he just drills you with questions and tests your knowledge about procedures and weather and makes sure that you can handle any emergency he can possibly think of to throw at you. And so he likes to see you sweat. Um, Every pilot I know hates going into these yearly evaluations. And at the end of the evaluation, um, the examiner has the power to decide, gives your, your license a stamp of, that either says you are fit to fly or you are unfit to fly. Um, and if you are unfit to fly, you may actually lose your job. So your job, your license is on the line every single year. And um, what I'm trying to get at with, with this is that I see this picture of, of evaluation um, similar to the Christian life. We, we go through seasons in our life that are tough, that are challenging, that cause us to reflect. And at the end of the day, we go through evaluations, we go through tests, um, hopefully to, to come out better on the other side, for a pilot to become more competent, to be more fit as a pilot. Um, and this also connects to our series in Lent, I think. Um, we, are, we are in our season of Lent that began last Wednesday. Um, and Lent, for those who maybe aren't too familiar with, with it, is a, a season in the Christian calendar. And it's a season in which Christians are encouraged to make space for God to do some refining work in us, um, to stretch us, to challenge us, to reevaluate us. It's, it's a season where we're encouraged to make space for God to do some pruning in our lives. And that can sometimes be tough and it can be invasive. But ultimately, this process of refinement ought to shape us into better disciples of Jesus. And that can be a little uncomfortable at times. I, I really like the way my friend uh, Julia Sandstrom describes this process we undergo in Lent. Um, if you guys pick up a Lenten reader... Uh, the first couple of pages there. Uh, I'm going to read you a snippet of how she describes Lent, and I really like this. Um, this is a devotional booklet that uh, our denomination puts out every year, um, and it just guides us through this season of Lent. So I'd encourage you to take one uh, copy or download it online. And here's a little story uh, that Julia writes to help us get into the right spirit of Lent to help us understand what this season is all about. So she says this about her, her dad. Uh, my dad is a master toy maker. He has made chickens, grasshoppers, ducks, bulldozers, trump, trump, dump trucks, 
ferry boats, cars, trains, and my favorite, the baby rattle. Last month, for the first time, I got to watch my dad turn a rattle on his lathe. Purple Heart is the best-looking wood for toys, in my opinion, so I requested this for my baby daughter. As I watched the block of wood spin and begin to turn, my dad applied pressure to the cutting tools, and I was instantly nervous. The wood wasn't shaving away like I thought it would. It was splintering, and when he stopped the lathe, chunks had come away. Apparently, Purple Heart is not the easiest wood to turn. He kept at it, though, and I was mesmerized at how the rough wood started to smooth. He added pressure carefully, moving the tool across the surface of the soon-to-be rattle, and a form began to take shape. I was, stuck, I was struck at how gnarly it looked at first and how much initially came away. The next phase took the longest. Sanding with increasingly finer and finer sandpaper, my dad smoothed the wood from rough to smooth to smoother, to the point where I don't think it gets any smoother than that. The final phase was my favorite to witness. He burnished the wood by turning the rattle rapidly on the lathe while holding the sawdust in his hand against the rattle. The scraps refined the remaining finished piece. And lastly, he added mineral oil, which deepened the color and made the wood almost shine. While he turned the rattle, I reflected on how the life of a disciple is similar to that piece of wood. We all start rough. When we first come to the faith, God strips away big chunks of our old life. But over time, the refining becomes subtler. It takes ever finer attunement to living like Jesus. And each time my dad reached for another piece of sandpaper, I thought, seriously, you're going to sand it more? This is taking forever. Discipleship can be like that. I sometimes say to God, seriously, didn't I already conquer that sin in my life? You want to do more work in this area of my life? Didn't we cover that already? Lent is the sandpaper season of discipleship. Whether you give something up or take something on during this season, allow God to use it to refine you. I love that last line. Lent is the sandpaper season of discipleship. Traditionally, during Lent, um, it is custom to give something up, some sort of luxury, some sort of comfort, something that maybe we take for granted. Uh, we give something up. Uh, it might be red meat, or it could be coffee, or it could be your, your favorite cold beverage in the fridge. Um, or it could be Netflix or social media or ice cream. There's different ways of going through this practice of giving something up for a season. But the point is not just to give something up just to make life harder for ourselves for 40 days or 46 days. Rather, you give something up to make space so that you can take on something new that will help refine you as a disciple. Maybe you give up your habit of watching Netflix this season. That's a, that's a good one for me to try and practice. And during this time that you would normally sit down and watch your favorite series, maybe you make that space designated to reading scripture, to studying God's word. Or maybe you give up social media for a season and you say, instead of checking what everyone is posting, I'm going to see what God is posting and I'm going to spend time in prayer um, and make that a practice that I want to focus on. 
Maybe you've never really fasted, and so you try that for a season, fast from coffee or from alcohol or from ice cream or whatever the case may be. And uh, my favorite, of course, it never fails, not with my youth group in Winnipeg or the youth group here. There's always one of the youth that come up to me and said, Rick, I'm practicing Lent. I'm giving up homework for Lent. (laughs) Or I'm giving up going to school for Lent. And I say, I don't think that's the point of Lent. I don't think that's going to help you get fit for the kingdom of God. But that does, pose a, that does pose a good question. And it is the main point I want us to wrestle with today. You will notice in your bulletins, I didn't give you three clear points to follow necessarily. I gave you a few questions to wrestle with through the text. Um, some of those questions that you can wrestle with on your own time by reading through the chapter of Luke 18, and some that we're going to wrestle with today. But the main point I want us to wrestle with is this. The question is, what makes us fit for the kingdom of God? Now, right off the hop, maybe some flags are going up in your mind, and you say, well, I don't really like that word. I don't really like that language. Fitness for the kingdom? What makes us fit? I don't really like that language when it comes to talking about entry requirements for heaven or requirements for living in God's kingdom. That's okay. Bear with me. I want to use this language to highlight our main point. And uh, it's actually it's actually a phrase, fitness for the kingdom, that I, I found in one of the commentaries that I was studying this week as we were preparing for this text. And so I want us to wrestle with that through this sermon and hopefully through this season of Lent. Um, and just ask ourselves, what is the criteria that determines being fit or unfit for God's kingdom? I think Jesus gives us the answer in in the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Luke chapter 18. Um, I will also have it on here. And I encourage you to read and reread the whole chapter as it really connects to this question. Uh, We're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 14, the parable of uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. But as you go home, I'd encourage you, read the whole chapter. There's multiple little stories that at first glance seem completely unrelated. They seem like isolated little stories, but they all kind of revolve around this question, and that is the struggle, what makes us fit for the kingdom of God? Let's read Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14, and we'll dive in together. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves 
will be exalted. Now, in order to fully appreciate this parable, I want to give you a bit of context of what is going on at this point in the Gospel of Luke. Um, If we kind of get a big picture glance at this Gospel, near the beginning of Luke, in about chapter 4, Jesus launches his kingdom ministry. And then a few chapters later, he gives this great explanation of God's upside-down kingdom. It runs very differently from the way earthly kingdoms run. It has a reversal of kingdom values. And in following chapters, Jesus invites his followers on this journey. He invites them to participate in this upside-down kingdom. And his followers literally follow him as he's journeying towards Jerusalem with the cross in mind, with the cross as his end goal. Along the way, he teaches his followers what the kingdom of God looks like. He uses parables to say it's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven and bread. Um, And he gives these different examples to help his followers understand what exactly is the kingdom of God? What does it look like? And then in chapter 18, where we start today, he shifts that a little bit. He goes from explaining what is the kingdom of God, what does it look like, to what kind of people are actually fit to participate in the kingdom of God? What kind of requirements are there to actually inherit eternal life, to be righteous, to enter the kingdom of God? And it is here that he tells this story about a Pharisee and a tax collector two types of people that would have been polar opposite people in the eyes of Jesus' original audience. The assumption right from the get-go is that the Pharisee should clearly be the one who is qualified for God's kingdom, not the tax collector. You and I, we've read the Gospels, we've heard the stories, and so we are preconditioned to associate Pharisees with something negative. We have automatically jump to the conclusion Pharisees are a bad role model. And fair enough, there is some truth to this because Jesus does give them a very hard time throughout the Gospels. However, the original audience would not have thought this. This is not the case for the original audience. And I would like us to journey back and and get into their mindset and see the Pharisee the way the original audience would have seen them. Think of a very positive Christian celebrity role model. Think of a highly respected and honored person of great social and political significance. Somebody who works hard to do the right thing. Someone who is a person of integrity. Somebody who is honest. Somebody who is generous. They are faithful to their spouse. It is this type of person that you and I would look up to and admire. And this is the kind of image Jesus' listeners would have about a Pharisee. As soon as you mention a story about a Pharisee, these thoughts would come. Oh, these are leaders to be admired. They have an upright life. They live honestly. They live generously. They take the law of Moses and the word of God seriously. Now, the Pharisee goes into the temple to pray. He separates himself from others in the temple.
and he stands and he prays. Now, right away, as we read that, we think, well, that's pretty arrogant. He's, he separates himself, he's standing upright, and he's praying out loud. And we think, how arrogant. But this is not at all what Jesus' audience would have thought. To stand in the temple and pray was normal. For someone of that status to separate themselves and worship elsewhere, worship closer to the center of the temple, was to be expected. And we look at the beginning of his prayer, and it's actually really good. He begins by giving thanks to God. Thanks, he gives thanks for his integrity, for being a man of high moral and ethical standards. He's genuinely honest, he's upright, he's faithful to his wife. Jewish law required fasting from time to time, but he goes above and beyond and he fasts twice a week. Tithing is another biblical principle. But you were only required to tithe from certain crops, from certain income. And here again, he goes above and beyond. The Pharisee practices generosity that goes beyond what was required. He gave a tithe of everything that he had. And let's be honest, it can be hard to tithe with the right attitude, even for us. It's not natural for us to jump to the conclusion and think, how much can I possibly give to the church? We tend to wrestle rather with the opposite question. Okay, what's, what's the least amount that I can give and still feel good about myself? Is it 10% of my net income or gross income? These are questions that we wrestle with, I've wrestled with. But the Pharisee didn't have this internal struggle. He gave generously above what he was required. This Pharisee took the Torah, the word of God, so seriously. He truly strived to live an honorable life. Not like other men who are robbers and evildoers and adulterers. Certainly not like the tax collector. But what is wrong with the tax collector? The tax collector in Israel, the tax collectors in Israel, they were viewed as crooks. They were viewed as traitors working for the Roman government. Israel was not happy to have Rome kind of oppress, oppressing them and ruling over them. They were the evil empire in Israel's mind. And so anyone who decided to be a tax collector, they were traitors of the faith, traitors of Israel, taking from the poor to give to this evil empire. Many of the tax collectors were known to be corrupt. They were known to skim a good chunk of the tax and slip it into their own pockets. It would have been any worshiper's instinct at the temple to look down at the tax collector and to think to themselves, that person doesn't belong here. That person is not fit for the temple. But let's look at the tax collector's prayer. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, notice the contrast between the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee sets himself apart to pray, and the tax collector stands far off to pray. The Pharisee stands, as was custom, but the tax collector 
it appears as prostrate and doesn't even dare look up to heaven. The Pharisee gives thanks to God for all the ways in which he is not like the other men, especially not like that tax collector. But the tax collector has nothing to boast about. He knows full well that he does not deserve to be in God's presence. He knows full well that his life has not been a life of integrity. And he knows full well that nothing he has done makes him fit for the kingdom. Beating his breast is an ancient sign of repentance. And all he dares say in his prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, an interesting thing about parables in youth, we've been going through a series of parables, is that they have certain elements that kind of flow through each parable. And one thing is that parables usually have an element of surprise. They usually have an element in their story that is meant to shock us. They have some shock value, just like a good movie does. And it is at the end of the parable where we find this shock value. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Let's sit with that for a moment. And going back to my example about uh, the pilots, at the beginning, it is, it is the unlikely person who gets the stamp of approval on his license. It would be the same comparison. A pilot who studied hard, who trained hard, who practiced hard, who did all the right things, and this newbie who just kind of wings it, comes in, and he's the guy that gets the stamp on his license that says, you're fit to fly? The unlikely character in this story is the one that gets the stamp of approval from Jesus that says, this is the person who is fit to enter the kingdom of God. But why? What made the Pharisee unfit for God's kingdom? What did the tax collector do or have? What did he possibly do right that the Pharisee missed? His life was about as upright as it possibly could get. He obeyed the law of Moses. And in those days, there were interpretations of that law, just like we have commentaries today and different denominations have different interpretations of certain bits of scripture. There was a book called the Talmud and a book called the Mishnah, and it was Jewish scholars kind of debating and explaining different interpretations of what Moses' law really demanded. And the Pharisees were known to take the safest route. They interpreted it the strictest, most demanding way, and this Pharisee in the temple tried to uphold and obey even that most demanding law. His flaw, his disqualifying factor, was that he relied on his own good works to justify himself before God. The problem was not him striving to have a good life. It was not doing good works that was the problem. Those were praiseworthy and good. But his major problem was that his faith was misplaced. And this in turn made him look at his neighbor with contempt. His confidence in being fit for the kingdom was placed in his own morality, his own piety, his own right living. And when that happened, he looked down 
at others for not measuring up to his high standards. Subconsciously, even though he may have not said it, he began to make it his job to judge who is in the kingdom and who is out, who is fit to be in the temple and who is not. And as we look at our own lives, I tend to jump to the conclusion and say, well, thank God that I don't have those tendencies. Thank God that we don't have those kinds of tendencies, right? But seriously, let's ask ourselves that question. Is that true of us? We think, well, no. We don't actually place our faith in our own self-righteousness, do we? We don't think that our own good works somehow sets us in right standing before God. Or do we? It's important to note in this text that Jesus is not only addressing Pharisees. Yes, the story is about a Pharisee. He's using that as an example. But his disciples and other followers are hearing this story. His point is not to discriminate a certain group of people. His point is to warn against a certain way of thinking, to warn against a certain attitude of our heart. One that even his closest disciples are tempted to fall into. And so I look at my own life and I say, I may not even realize that I have fallen into this kind of trap. But there's a way to find out if we have. There is a tool that Luke gives us in this text to kind of evaluate ourselves and kind of ask ourselves, do we sometimes fall into a way of thinking self-righteously? Have we given into this kind of trap? And the test is simple. Simply ask yourself, who is it that I look down upon in my own life? Are there people that I worship next to whom I look at with contempt? Do I look at the speck of wrong living in my neighbor's eye, but I don't really realize the giant plank of self-righteousness in my own eye? One story that I learned about this was actually back in college. Uh, I went to a Christian college, um, Providence College in Manitoba. And it was a Christian college, and I lived in the dorm, and I got to be good friends with, with the guys that I lived with in our dorm, uh, in our dorm hall. And uh, it was in my second year, after I had, you know, a bunch of Bible classes under my belt, a few theology classes under my belt. I'm pumping myself up, right? that there was this freshman who came into our dorm and I didn't like him right from the get-go. Here's this young punk that comes into my dorm hallway and now I have to live with this guy. I instantly looked down upon him. He hadn't yet had all the Bible classes I had. He hadn't yet understood this theology that I had been studying this young punk with his gauged earrings and his loud music and his obnoxious loud behavior and his crude humor. Great, this is the guy I have to deal with. But when I actually got to know him, because my roommate began to be friends with him, I was like, why is he in our room? Come on. My roommate began to be friends with him, and finally I got to talking to him and I got to know him. And I ended up becoming really good friends with this guy and realized that he had a love for God and he was hoping to get into ministry and he was bolder in some areas of his faith than this studious Bible student was. 
sure, he didn't have it all together, and maybe he wasn't quite as far on his Christian journey as I was, but the important thing was he was heading in the right direction. His heart was in the right place, and mine was not. I was wrong in the way that I had judged him, in the way that I looked down upon him. I told him this years later. Um, he was actually in my wedding party, so we became really close friends. And I told him, you know what my initial thought about you was? He's like, what? Tell me. He's like, I thought you were a little immature punk jerk. And he was like, what? He laughed at me and it was all good. But another way that we tend to fall into this trap is subconsciously. We don't do it willingly, and so we need to be aware of it. But one of those things, one of the ways that we tend to fall into this false sense of self-righteousness is when we look down on others in our churches for not measuring up, whether it be they don't measure up to our busyness or our volunteerism or our activism or our sense of morality. This is a common problem among churches, and it sounds something like this. If you hear yourself thinking, oh, I volunteer so much of my time to serve, not like so-and-so. I run a Bible study. I give more than 10% of my income. I'm always planning and organizing events. I'm the one making visitations. I'm the one always hosting people, unlike so-and-so. Or, I know that person is pretty messed up. I sure hope they don't think of becoming a member at my church. These are patterns of thinking that Jesus warns us against. And again, I want to say that serving and being involved and being generous and trying to live morally and helping others along the way are all great markers of a Christian life. They are all necessary markers of the life of discipleship. Striving to put our faith into action is not the problem. That is a good thing and a necessary thing. In fact, um, James 2.17 says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. But the big point is, we do not earn righteousness through our good works. It is impossible. Keep reading chapter 18. There's this little story about the rich young, young ruler who followed all the rules. He followed all the law. He genuinely wanted to do right. But we all lack something. And Jesus gives this little example. He says, it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And he's not talking specifically about being wealthy. That's not the problem. What he's getting at, ultimately, is it's impossible for us to measure up to God's standards. And as you read that story, he leaves the disciples frustrated, throwing their hands up. They say, well, then who can be saved if nobody measures up? And then Jesus says, finally, you guys are getting the picture. Finally, you guys are understanding. You can't measure up. It's impossible. We can't earn righteousness through good works. And so if we're trying that route, then we're actually heading in the wrong direction. So then finally, to wrap up, we need to ask ourselves, what is the proper posture? 
What is it then that ultimately qualifies us for the kingdom of God? What determines being fit or unfit in the kingdom of God, in this upside-down kingdom? Romans 3, 22 through 24 says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And yet all are justified freely by his grace. I want to give this little illustration. I'm not very skilled at any kind of graphic design, so you can laugh at me. I was pretty proud about this. But uh, one of my teachers actually um, gave a similar example, and it really helped me evaluate where my heart is and how I think about this question. What makes us fit to be in the kingdom of God? And he kind of drew it like this. He said he put the cross at the center and the white space is kind of the world or our journey, signifying our journey in our life. And each of these little dots signify people. And so he says we're all on a journey Some of us are still a little bit further away from the cross. Some of us are actually pretty close and get most things right. The Pharisee, the rich young ruler, they were actually pretty close. But how far or how close we are to the cross does not determine who is in or who is out of God's kingdom. What does matter is what direction you're moving in. Are you heading towards the cross or are you heading away from it? Where you are in your journey is not as important as where you are headed. And where you are headed is determined by where you place your faith. In whom or in what do you place your faith? Romans 3 says we are only made fit for the kingdom through faith in Jesus by his grace. That's the only entry requirement. And the tax collector got that right. I love that. Through faith, by his grace. And that was the only possible way that God could make us righteous in his eyes, that God could make us fit for his kingdom. And it was only possible through what Jesus did on the cross. So as we go into the season of Lent, um, could I encourage us to place our faith at the cross, not on our works? Could I also encourage us to make space during the season of Lent to allow God to do that uncomfortable work of refining us, of doing some pruning in our lives? Maybe big chunks of wood will start flying off, like this purple wood. Or maybe you just need some fine sandpaper to get rid of the rough edges. But it is God who does the refining. 
God who finishes the work in us. We just have to be humble enough to get in the lathe and let the master carpenter make us into a work of art that is fit for his kingdom. Put your faith in his work, not on your own. Amen.